baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. As we get ready to mark the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks in our city, we wanted to take an in-depth look at the lasting legacy of that dark day, our city's health. More people have now died from their 9-11 illnesses since 9-11 than died on 9-11. Anyone who was there that day and survived the collapse of the Twin Towers, those who worked down there, went to school in the area, or lived in the neighborhood, knew how bad it was. And those who worked on the pile in the weeks and months after 9-11, they saw it up close. As they moved things in that pile, they, the pile was on fire for, for weeks afterwards. And the, the, it had a chimney effect. If you opened up a hole and the oxygen you'd get in to, by moving something out of the way, the dust flew up in your face. And it was burning ash. It was like standing over an incinerator with a really, really toxic blend of stuff. This week on 880 In-Depth, killer cancers from the World Trade Center dust and smoke and the heroic efforts to support those still affected by it today. Plus, the hidden pain of 9-11 that is still very much a concern. The mental health uh, consequences of the World Trade Center attack were enormous. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheld. In order to help understand the health impact of 9-11 20 years later, you need to go back to 2001 and remember the conditions. This is an interview I conducted days after the attacks on Greenwich Street in a neighborhood ripe with acrid smoke just blocks north of the burning pile. And you live right on the edge here. I mean, what's, yeah. what's it, what do you see in front of you, first of all? Well, it's getting worse again. Uh, it was better this morning. It seems the fire doesn't seem to ever stop. And the putrid smell is getting worse again. It was good for a couple of hours this morning. And now I was resistant to wear a mask. And I just was happy to find one just now at the Salvation Army. And I think it's... I wish they would tell us a little more about the actual conditions of the air. I think the public, at least the public living down here, should be alerted to the asbestos content and the chemical and electric fire damage that's done to the air. I know they don't want to cause panic, right? Then if they would actually tell us what the air condition is right now, uh, they probably would cause a huge panic downtown. And they can't handle that. Nobody can blame them for that. It was in those early days that a local group of medical experts recognized the exact same thing. It was literally the birth of what is today the World Trade Center Health Program, which provides medical monitoring and treatment of 9-11 related conditions for first responders and survivors. The story is told to us by Dr. Michael Crane, medical director of the World Trade Center's Health Program at Mount Sinai. There's a story that I've heard, I was not there, but I was told that um, just like I couldn't get into the city um, on 9-11, uh, uh, that 
the time of the attack because everything had shut down. Uh, a group of physicians at Mount Sinai also couldn't get in, and they they met in a, somebody's house up in Westchester. And it is said that that group of doctors plotted out the entire course that they would see in the population, including cancer, including post-traumatic stress, and pretty much outlined the program or the needs of the program as they are today. So there's some really, were some very far-sighted physicians involved, and. Uh, um, it was pretty. It was pretty certain that things like asthma and post-traumatic stress uh, were going to be very prominent, and cancer because of the toxins released uh, and the and the burning of those toxins uh, on, on 9/11. Today, over 80,000 first responders from 9/11 are signed up for the World Trade Center Health Program. Remarkable when you consider that it's estimated that 90,000 first responders worked at Ground Zero in the weeks and months after the attacks. Medical experts have learned a lot over the past 20 years. We wanted to hear more. WCBS reporter Peter Haskell sat down with Dr. Michael Crane. What was it about the air downtown around that site that has created all these problems? Yes, um... The collapse of the towers um, by the force of the and the impact of the plane and the fires that started um, produced, as as you recall, the dust cloud. And you remember probably from being down there and, and also from seeing the photographs that people who were down there at the time of the collapse, even blocks away, were covered in dust. They looked like they had been had a bucket of plaster poured over their heads, literally. Um, and they were breathing that dust and eating it. And the responders who went racing down there were doing the same thing, only they stayed. They didn't, they didn't walk away. They kept on breathing and eating it. And as they went to search to rescue people, as they then went to search for the uh, remains of people who had perished, as they went to uh, then do the, the cleanup and, and the rebuild, um, as they moved things in that pile, they, the, the pile was on fire for, for weeks afterwards, and the, the, it had a chimney effect. If you opened up a hole and the oxygen would get in to, by moving something out of the way, the dust flew up in your face, and it was burning ash. It was like standing over an incinerator with a really, really toxic blend of stuff, plastics and metals and everything else that was in those towers on fire and coming up into your face. So it was a very mixed and dangerous exposure. And, and coming back to the dust cloud, um, even today, even now, the contents, the total contents of that dust cloud is, are, are uncertain. It's an unknown exposure because no one had instruments down to go rushing forward and, you know, m- measure that, what was it, a volcanic explosion. Um, and um, so... The only measurements that were done were done later on when people had the, the sense to get little plastic cups run back down and scoop up the stuff and take it back to the lab. But that means all the stuff they carried off into the air, the gases, the fumes, other vapors, uh, particles that didn't settle, we don't have them. We don't know that what was there. Uh, we know it was on the ground later, uh, uh, but the true content of that dust cloud is unknown and will be forever. Give us a sense of the size and scope of the program, the health program, and how it's grown through the years. Sure. Um, uh, well, it, it literally start, it, it started off with that same group of physicians 
finally getting into the city and calling up people who they knew in the labor force and asking how people were doing. And gradually, uh, at first tens and then hundreds and then thousands of people came in complaining of various exposure-related issues like difficulty breathing and coughing, terrible cough. There was an entire paper written by Dr. Dave Prezant uh, of the fire department on the, the World Trade Center cough that he noticed in his firefighters, uh, which was this thunderous cough uh, and, and quite characteristic. You could literally hear it a block away. Um, so these folks had a lot, a lot of respiratory irritation. Uh, the irritation produced syndromes like asthma. Um, the dust got swallowed, and we think that that began to begin a cycle of events that led to heartburn and gastroesophageal reflux. It got into your nasal passages and gave people terrible sinusitis and situs headaches. Um, and the dust got swallowed and breathed in, and all the components, uh, or many of the components, were dispersed out through the body, into the lungs, of course. Um, and that type of toxic exposure, we think, uh, was the beginning of the tendency for the responders uh, to develop cancers. Just, just to clarify about the cancers for a second, uh, there's, a, there's a, a wide range of cancers that we see uh, in the responders. Um, you know, we've seen um, a lot, well, we've seen a lot of skin cancers, uh, but we don't, we're not too concerned about them because they're very curable. You can do minor surgery and get rid of them. We've seen some melanoma. We've seen some lymphoma. We've seen prostate cancers. Um, we've seen kidney cancers. We're beginning to see a little bit more in the way of lung cancer. And that was a tremendous fear at the, at the beginning uh, because when you're down there, and you're breathing in dust, and it's full of cancer-causing agents, we had a real concern that within a very short time, people would begin to show up at higher rates of lung cancer. That, thank God, has not happened, at least not yet, um, despite the fact that there's asbestos down there and many other types of, of carcinogens. And part of that is that our population um, wasn't so big on cigarette smoking. Uh, even at the time they were down there, and that we've had some success also in convincing not to s people to, to not smoke and to quit smoking, such that maybe we we pulled uh, the fuel away from that particular fire, and maybe we won't get that spike in lung cancer uh, that we were afraid of. That'd be great. It is out there. Uh, people are getting it, but so far, so far, it, it's not. Uh, what we were really concerned about, uh, to the extent we were really concerned about it at the very beginning. And while cancers dominate the World Trade Center health program efforts, there is another area of concern still today. The mental health uh, consequences of the World Trade Center attack were enormous. Um, it, um, it, it, particularly for post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a, a, a just a fiendishly um, uh, difficult disorder for patients and providers and like, it, it can be it can be treated and treated well. However, many times patients who are having the nightmares and having the fears and and um, uh, feeling depressed and feeling lost and feeling as though, you know, somehow they did something wrong. Um, it's very, very difficult for, for patients to have a condition like that, plus to be physically ill. 
uh, and and to maintain, you know, your position in the community to go to work and and do what you have to do. Um, and uh, many patients are in that boat of having a, a this terrible anxiety that goes with post-traumatic stress disorder, plus having um, a lung condition uh, and have to take medic medications that can make you feel shaky and anxious. Uh, and so uh, the, the PTSD is very, very um, uh, important to deal with. And we have excellent facilities to do so, and we seem to be having um, some degree of success in treating. There's no cure for that. It's, we don't, there's no pill that says we're going to take away your PTSD. But there are lots and lots of approaches and avenues and you know, with groups and medications uh, that can ameliorate the symptoms and give uh, the patient the symbol of a, of a normal life. Um, some folks, however, uh, even though they have symptoms, still don't want to be treated. There is that terrible, awful stigma of mental health and, and illness and mental illness. And it, the stigma sometimes leads people to not go to treatment, to, to drop off, to kind of say, I'll do this later. I, I don't want to do it now. My work is going okay. My situation is going okay. I think 20 years out, um, it's a really important time for people to do an honest assessment of themselves. Um, PTSD and, and illnesses, uh, mental illnesses, which are untreated, depression, anxiety, can really take the core out of, of joy out of a life. And I think at 20 years, um, we should be saying to ourselves, to our patients, and to each other, the physicians are not immune to it either, particularly after this past year, right, with the COVID. We're right in the same boat as our patients. We should all be looking at each at each other and ourselves, really, really honestly and saying, look, look, post-COVID, I know I have this. Post-World Trade Center, I know it's been a long time, but I'm still bothered by the nightmares. Let's do something about it. Let's all do something about it. Doctors, patients, let's do it. The help is there. The willingness to help is there. And the appreciation of all the courage and all the bravery uh, of, of the, the World Trade Center responders that they've shown time after time after time. And now the physicians and the health practitioners and everybody else who got banged over the head psychologically by this COVID, the help is there. And it works. Mental health treatment works. Are there still people now, 20 years later, picking up the phone getting online and registering for the program now? You bet. They're still coming in. Um, in the past, uh, let's see, I think responder totals uh, at the time right after uh, Zadroga were about 50, 56, 57,000, including, including our colleagues at the fire department. Um, we have now gone up to over 80,000, so about a increase, increase of about 24, 25,000 people. And they're still coming. They're still signing up. I mean, the 90,000 people, I think, was a good guess, a good estimate, but it, it could be a little bit higher. Uh, the important thing being that if we have literally um, eight out of nine responders now in the program, 
we can get a very good idea of what's really out there as a complete population, well, you know, with a few people not included, of course, and you can really begin to understand and plan for the long term because you see across this 80,000 people, well, here's what's really here. Here are the cancers. Uh, the people don't seem to be developing extra conditions yet, you know, heart disease, other things we were worried about, not yet. Um, so maybe we set up the plans now. We, we work like hell to take care of the things that are really ambushing people, like the PTSD, like some of the cancers, and get everybody set up such that as this next sequence of years began, and this is we're 57 years old now, as on average, we're not kids anymore, so diseases related to aging will start to come and, and, and uh, um, be, be present in the population. Uh, I, I think that taking this anniversary commemoration and really doing that self-assessment and programmatic assessment that I mentioned, what's really here, what can we do, what have we done, how can we do it better, how do we set it up going forward so we meet very well the chronic diseases that might come with aging related to world trade or not, I think it's the time to do that assessment and questioning right now. The World Trade Center Health Program provides medical monitoring and treatment of first responders, recovery and cleanup workers, even volunteers who worked at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, even the crash site in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. They also provide screening and treatment to those who lived or worked in the area or those who went to school in the disaster zone on 9-11 or the months that followed. The World Trade Center Health Program was established by the Zadroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act of 2010. It was named for James Zadroga, a New York City police officer who died of respiratory disease attributed to his work in the recovery operation on the pile at Ground Zero. After a bitter political fight, the Health Program and Victims' Compensation Fund was reauthorized and now will be fully funded to the year 20. 90. What do you think the impact of this program has been? I think it has. Um, I think it has saved lives. I think it has, um, maybe even more than that, it has brought peace of mind uh, to a population of people who were terribly traumatized uh, on 9/11 and who also became physically ill. Um, and bringing physical comfort and reduction of symptoms and peace of mind to tens of thousands of people um, is a real contribution. How long is this program going to go? Well, uh, it's, um, it's, I think it's got 70 more years. I'll only be about 175 then, but so we'll see. <laughs> so we'll have another interview. Uh, but I, no, it's got it's got a a long life ahead of it, and I think uh, I think it will continue to examine itself, look at its population, research the causes of what's going on, research the cures, and make them available to patients in an atmosphere of trust. Fantastic. Anything else? I know we've covered a lot of territory. Anything else you want to highlight or you want to mention? Um, yes, there is one thing. Um, 
those of us who've been in this business for a while know that right now, listening to your broadcast and what we're talking about, um, in that group of people, there are some folks who are still tormented by uh, the events of 9-11 and the nightmares and the, the ill feelings. Um, that, that those nightmares and ill feelings don't make you a bad person. You're not a bad person. In fact, they're a sign that you're a person of conscience and a good person. And you can get help that will alleviate those symptoms and let you get to sleep and let you feel better about your life and make you feel like a cloud is lifted off you. And it's right here at the World Trade Center Health Program. Dr. Crane, thank you. Thank you, Pete. For those who are interested, you can sign up with the World Trade Center Health Program by going to the CDC website and searching for World Trade Center. But the health program is only part of the support our nation is providing the heroes of 9-11 and those left behind. The Victims' Compensation Fund provides victims and their survivors financial compensation to spare these people financial hardship. Getting those who are eligible signed up for the program is now the life's work of Michael Barish. Well, 9-11 didn't end on 9-11. More people have now died from their 9-11 illnesses since 9-11 than died on 9-11. And it's not going to stop just because the 20th anniversary has come and gone. Um, that's really the legacy, that people continue to get sick and die. Barish is managing attorney for the law firm Barish and McGarry, a leader in the area of 9-11 victims' compensation. Spend any time with Michael and you will understand the passion he has for this mission. He sat down for in-depth with our Peter Haskell. Who are the people that are eligible for this? Thank you for asking that question. Everyone in the downtown community is eligible. It's not just for first responders, even though that's who led the charge in Washington. It's for the 300,000 downtown office workers, the 25,000 downtown residents, and the 50,000 students and teachers, all who were below Canal Street and exposed to the same toxins as the firefighters and the cops. In terms of the, the certified conditions, How does that work? You said 68 cancers. Do you expect that as time goes on, there might be more conditions added? Well, I know that they're studying autoimmune diseases now. They're studying cardiac diseases. For sure, I think they will end up adding more illnesses. No cancers were recognized as related to the 9-11 toxins until 2012 and 2013. And today we have 68 cancers plus many respiratory illnesses. So there's a system set up within NICOSH to add these additional illnesses as the proof evolves. And 20 years down the road, Barish knows some people who need to hear this message live outside New York. Well, uh, we represent people who live in every single state. And thankfully, the World Trade Center Health Program has clinics in every single state. So if you have moved out, you've retired to Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, you can get very good treatment from doctors who do nothing but treat 9-11 illnesses. And you should definitely take advantage of that. But you're absolutely right, Peter. Firefighters and cops and other volunteers came from all over the country to help out, to help search through the debris, to find... Um, people who were missing. 
And they did a wonderful thing. And when they went home, they brought with them the same toxins in their lungs that Jimmy Zedroga was found to have in his lungs. So not surprisingly, you're seeing these cancers in people who live in every single state. Uh, it's truly heartbreaking. You asked earlier, how long does the process take? It takes approximately two years from the date you're, uh, you register with the health program and get certified to getting an award. And um, that's a lot faster than a, an auto accident, which can usually take three to four years to make its way through the courts. We're talking about a government program, which typically involves a lot of bureaucracy. And you talk about the time frame, but at the end of the day, how do you think this program is being run? I think it's been run great, and by all three special masters, including the current one, Rupa Bhattacharya. This is a non-adversarial program. I really do believe that the special master, the people who work for her, the hearing officers when we appeal cases, they want to help the people in the 9-11 community, which is not always the case when you go to a court. And um, yes, you need to have affidavits from coworkers, from neighbors, people who saw you there, and it's a governmental program. So the government's not giving money to people who can't prove that they were there. But it is 20 years later. A lot of companies have gone out of business and can't give the claimant an employer verification letter. A lot of uh, people that you used to be in touch with, coworkers from 20 years ago, you've lost track of. So for many people, they don't have any witnesses. The government gives you a chance to testify, and if you're credible, perhaps you have an old tax return, photographs. There are so many other ways to prove that you were exposed to the toxins. And as I said, they want to help you. So I urge everyone, even if you're currently healthy, register now. Because the truth is, if you get sick in 10, 20, 30 years, your witnesses may not be around. So get those witnesses to sign affidavits on your behalf now while you can find them, while they're still around and able to sign those affidavits before the company you worked for tw you know, 20 years ago goes out of business. Protect yourself, protect your family, and register now. You spoke about the awards. How much money is in this fund? And I think one thing that people wonder about, is it going to run out of money? That was a legitimate um, concern two years ago before John Stewart and the others helped us get permanent extension and full funding. We now have over $10 billion that's been set aside with the promise to increase it if they need more money. Well, the average age right now of a first responder is 59 and a half years old. The average age of an office worker, about 61 years old. These people are going to be around, hopefully, for another 20 years. You're gonna see a lot more people get sick and dying in the next 20 years. And fortunately, there is enough money and you won't be taking that away from the injured and sick firefighters and cops. I assure you, if you were an office worker, a downtown resident, student or teacher, take advantage of these programs. They're there for you. It's impossible to speak about the health impact of 9-11 without mentioning the psychological toll. Within a short time after the attacks, psychologist Dr. Paula Madrid started working with the Children's Health Fund to respond to the issues within the community. 
So, you know, we established what we call the psychological ground zero. And what that meant is that we were going to be looking at specific groups of people. Number one, of course, those who were the closest to geographically to what happened to the events, right? So we focused on residents of Battery Park City, Chinatown, and the surrounding areas. We did outreach to those groups and ended up serving many, many of them, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of residents of the area. Then we looked at research that had come out of Columbia University, indicating that, in fact, many very, very vulnerable people in the community were actually those who um, were recent immigrants to the United States, who had been working around the area or who lived in the area as well, uh, but also those who lived far away. So we found that there were subsets of the of, um, areas within, let's say, the South Bronx and Queens that were severely impacted. They were impacted because they had come to the U.S. looking for essentially a better life and a sense of safety. And when 9-11 happened, they realized that perhaps that was not the case. You know, their, their sense of safety was challenged tremendously, but also because most of these people actually knew someone who had either died or evacuated or who had, you know, been severely impacted by the events. So we outreached to these populations as well. We found that restaurant workers, widows of restaurant workers, cleanup workers, rescue recovery, firefighters, police officers were also considered vulnerable, vulnerable populations. And we did also target those groups because we knew that it was, you know, our, our responsibility to do so. I want to ask you about children specifically. Mm-hmm. What kind of what kind of problems did they face? What kind of emotional trauma did they endure? When it comes to children, we observed a wide range of reactions, um, a great deal of resiliency as well, but a lot of impact. So in regards to reactions, you know, a lot of the reactions we noticed were what we call adjustment disorders and anxiety disorders, and of course some depression. We also notice, you know, behavioral problems, and that's expected. You know, children will act out when things are not going their way or when things are not going the, uh, the proper way, you know, in, in their lives. Um, a lot of it also happens because parental wellness and, and support is essential. And when parents are feeling distressed, then it's, of course, very challenging. Now, we, you know, at, at, a, at a higher level of symptomatology and vulnerability, were those children of uh, parents who died in the events of 9-11, and those actually experienced very prolonged and complex trauma responses. The reason for this is that, um, you know, not everyone's body was found, as we know, for years. And so the families lived in a sense of, you know, the unknown limbo. There were many fantasies created around what, whether the person was alive or not and what was to happen. And that created, in my opinion, um, you know, just complex trauma, additional, uh, you know, prolonged grief and, and difficulty processing the loss, which is not uncommon, but it's something that, it, that was experienced as well. Now, some teenagers struggled in a very particular way. You know, as we know, those are years in which identities are being developed, and solidified in some ways, and that's the case for young adults too. And I think they struggle with, with, you know, a sense of what to do, what does this mean for my life? And these are both teenagers and young adults who were 
whose families were impacted and those who were not, because we also served some who were not directly impacted, but who were having emotional and uh, traumatic responses. Um, I think a great deal of issues of identity, what to do, how to move forward, who am I, am I supposed to do something? You know, I I remember several uh, young adults saying, you know, I'm going to enlist in the Army or in the Navy or something just because they felt I need to do something for my country. This is the moment to do something about it. Other people say, well, I'm going to be a physician because this is the best way to help out if there's anything Should anything ever happen again, I want to be a medical doctor so that I can help as many people. Like those at the World Trade Center Health Program, Dr. Madrid and her colleagues who work on the psychological issues are taking measure of this 20th anniversary. You know, I believe that, you know, that there's been a remarkable level of resiliency and growth. And I, I think that you know, most people are doing okay for the most part. I will say, though, that um, what I am aware of is the fact that there is this thing that we call the anniversary effect, which means that every year prior to, during, and a bit of time after the anniversary, um, families are triggered, kids are triggered, and, you know, some of these children were young. They were maybe five or six, Um, but you know what happens? Um, and even the younger ones, even if they were pre-verbal or not quite verbal, I, I have heard over the years from parents that there's a change in their behavior because even this pre-verbal kind of memories and sensations and awareness of trauma around them, I think that's the one thing to keep in mind that, um, you know, definitely support can be given to families around these anniversaries because they will definitely need it for, I think, for for a long time. Our thanks to Dr. Madrid and to Peter Haskell for his reporting work this week. 2,977 people were killed in the attacks on our country on September 11th. More than 6,000 were injured. According to data listed by the CDC, of those who have signed up for the World Trade Center program, 4,000 627 have died. Eight eighty in depth is a production of WCBS News Radio eight eighty and the Odyssey New York Digital Team. Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Sheld, are the executive producers. Production and editorial support from Dempsey Pilat. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a week. Just search for 880 In-Depth wherever you get your audio. Thank you for listening. Be safe and never forget. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 